Welcome back, I'm Kim Bailey and this is Inside Exec. We have a very special guest with us today, someone that I have known for a considerably long period of time, all of her working career in fact. She was at university when I first met her and now she's uh, in a position of power and somewhat prestige but we'll hear about that as we talk. Her name is Mariana Georgiadis and I am delighted to be able to have convinced her to have this conversation with us. We had a conversation last night that went for a little bit of time about education and about community baselines of, of education where we, everyone in the room disagreed with one another about what we were talking about. Mariana is a director of uh, Early Childhood Centre and we will get her to talk about her experience and where she's sitting at the moment. But today we're going to cover a broad range of topics about managing a very diverse multicultural as well as a multi-skilled team of educators in an area that is increasingly important for communities and for our long-term education system. This morning, before we even started recording, we've again talked about all sorts of mental health issues as well as the broader education issues that we are both seeing at different levels within uh, organisations and within career paths. So it'll be a broad-ranging discussion. But let me first of all say, welcome, Mariana, and I won't ask any of the hard questions. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. First of all, I guess, as an introduction, because I have known of your career and and what you've been doing over the years, but I remember when you were at university and you were going to be what we used to call in those days the preschool teacher, and I know that your career has been in community early childhood education. So just give us a potted history of... um, We might even go back in terms of your introduction to this country because you weren't born here. uh, I was actually. Oh, you were. I was actually. How funny! (laughs) Wrong already. I've learned something. Very good. (laughs) So yeah. So so just bring us up to date on uh, who you are and and where you're at. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Like I said, I was born here in Australia, but interestingly, my family were from Greece. My mum and dad are from Greece. And despite having lived here my first five years of life, I travelled probably until the age of 16, about five times backwards and forwards from Greece to Australia, uh, which was a very interesting early introduction to education. I think Mm. that that's probably Mm. a defining space for me for what led me down this rabbit hole, if you want to call it that. And then came back in 88, which interestingly enough is the same year that my husband arrived in Australia, coincidence. And it was a week before I actually started uni. The most interesting experience of my life, because whilst we, when we were in Greece, irrelevant to the education part, but I was a very sheltered young person who wasn't even allowed to use public transport or a bus on her own independently. And then coming to Australia, where I now had to catch two trains and a bus (laughs) on my own, Uh, to go to uni and when my mum told me that this is what you have to do I panicked and I said oh I don't know if I can do it so mum actually came with me on my first day at uni she helped me take the trains connect the trains go to the buses and all of that stayed in the cafeteria all day knitting to take me back (laughs) so that was uh, an interesting experience Um, and that led to obviously meeting some extraordinary educators Although in my early part of education, I think my biggest concern was that I was bilingual. 
and Greek was my strength at the time, not English, because even though we had travelled backwards and forward many times, my higher education, so high school, was all in Greece, mm. majority of it rather. Well, I missed a point where I actually came back out in Australia when I was 17 to do what I thought was the end of high school, but having ended up doing secretarial business course, right, which led me to have better English typing skills yes. and improved my... But that wasn't my intent. Um, my intent was to do high school. But anyway, that's a different story. But which was very, very helpful in the sense of when I went to uni that I had some of that support from that English, mm. from that year in Australia. Yeah, but I met two extraordinary educators who've both now passed away. And interestingly, I've got their photos on my uh, notice board right. at, at work. And I've had them all of these years. And they were both such dynamic, incredible educators, Judith Kroll and George Hempel. Not George Hempel, George Lewis. They valued bilingualism. Mm. And it wasn't something that I was actually, that I'd had really experienced. Yeah, so, so we're talk, talking late 80s. Yes. So not at, at a time where it was even in the community it wasn't or the valued. workforce wasn't valued no, at all. it wasn't all. valued. And it wasn't advocated for very, very mm. much. And if anything, if you sounded not English, if you sounded, I mean, it was a time of around the Effie and the Wog Boys and, you know, yeah. all of that sort of stuff where... It wasn't frowned upon, but it wasn't. It was joked a lot about, or yeah. it wasn't yeah. sort of... You, you weren't considered to be bright. No. And you were considered to be a certain stereotype yeah. of a culture. I fit in pretty well. I, was, I don't <laughs> think I was an Effie ever, but... <laughs> no. 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 I think I was more a um, gothic Effie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I will just put it aside. It's, it, it's probably rare in the... 40-plus years that I've known Mariana that I've actually seen her in anything other than black and white. I know she's a black and white top on today. I think it, it was just, just for this occasion. <laughs> they quite inspired me in ways that, like I remember going to a prac and I was struggling immensely, not because I wasn't doing well in the written part, but because I wasn't received Mm -hmm. very well. I had some health issues at the time, but the particular, the circumstances in the prac anyway led to this woman, two weeks before the end of my prac, deciding she was going to put me on in line to fail this prac. And I remember George Lewis came out and I was petrified. He was known to be a harsh marker. And of all the days, my wisdom, I decided to actually read a story in Greek because I had a little Greek boy and I was doing it at a group time. And the actual director so I was reading it in Greek and English obviously explaining mm. and uh, the educators at the time there were 20 children in the room probably about five of which had a lot of behavior difficulties um, one child had autism and they left me on my own to do the group with 20 children with all of these behaviors as a student which is all you know mm. so so good and whilst I'm reading the story I've got one child climbing under my chair another child <laughs> doing something else another child sort of you know I'm sort of I'm, and, I'm, and I'm petrified at this stage that this this person is going to go, that's the end of this line yeah. for yeah. you. And I think it was year one in my course. We finished the activity and now it's evaluation time and we're sitting with George Lewis in the office and I'm, I looked at him and I said, before you say anything else, I need a direct answer from you. Is it a pass or a fail? If it's a fail, I'd much rather not hear the conversation. I'd like to leave now. Yeah. He looks at me and he goes, you're very direct, aren't you? I said... <laughs> 
Yes, but I said I just I need to know this because yeah. I just can't deal with this prac any longer than is necessary. Hmm. For me, I feel it's drained me. Hmm. And he goes, it's a pass. And I didn't actually hesitate. I jumped on him. <laughs> I gave him this big hug and I said, okay, we can have a conversation now. But I said, can I request, please? I said, I'm happy to do another prac at another centre all over again. Hmm. I just need to leave from here today. Yeah. What had sold him was the fact that I was brave enough to actually tackle language and particularly not language but maintaining home language and he was passionate about language mm. so I hit a raw end for him a raw nerve yeah. in that first year at uni I remember uh, them inviting me to a conference I remember going and doing speaking in the conference about maintaining the home language and supporting and I became involved at that point with a bilingual interest group and did a whole lot of work with a lot of different sort of around mm. different areas and but it just highlighted to me that there was value in that other language and that I wasn't deficient Mm. by having that language. By having it. So in the 30-odd years that have occurred since then, has it blossomed or is it still seen as just something that is extra to what Mm. is on offer in, in the early childhood environment? There's an undercurrent and I feel that in some ways some people value it and some people see it as a threat. Mm. Um, some people value the the second language because they feel that it brings to the community and other people feel you should be an Aussie and as an Aussie you should learn the English, main language yeah. and you should be able to communicate and if a parent comes into the centre and they can't communicate. But I feel so privileged because over the years, and maybe that's my experiences and whatever as well, but I've pursued in working with people from a diverse background. Yeah. And I have found immense value and immense frustrations as a result of it, uh, but immense value because you get such insights to people, to culture, to just different thinking that you wouldn't otherwise get. Mm. And it's been fascinating to me across the years. I mean, I've sort of been what an educator for 30, 35 years now. Who knows? I've lost track now. But I remember some of the early educators that I had at Canterbury Children's College, and they've gone to become immense educators you know their own power like an extraordinary Amal who I worked with those early years and she arrived like me probably about a a week before she sort of you know started working with me Uh, no no sorry a few months six months and she'd only just learned English but what an extraordinary educator she's gone to become a director and blossom in her own right she's just so bright And I've sort of had the privilege of seeing so many people from so many culturally diverse backgrounds achieve such high standards. And I've always wondered, is it the fact that they've had to work so much harder? Work so much harder to prove themselves. They've had to work so much harder. I'm not saying that there aren't Aussie educators. Aussie, I'm an Aussie. But that there aren't educators out there who are incredible having lived in one Mm -hmm. country. But I feel that... There's something about having lived between two countries and the experiences or the what yeah. you've experienced that leads you to be a different person. You, you have different insight yeah. into what's happening around you. Yeah. So that was a, a defining moment in terms of the, the university years mm. and the course that you have taken in that time. You've also moved towards special education, special needs mm. um, young people. Did that happen at that time as well, or was that something that developed later? Judith Kroll was passionate, passionate about, and George also, 
They were passionate about the inclusion of children with support needs in uh, mainstream. But they also believed in the importance of early intervention. And they believed that the sooner we start intervention, the better outcomes the child has. And that the more opportunities that were offered to young children in those early, very defining... And it was interesting because the research at the time wasn't very conclusive, so we didn't have the neuroscience Mm. that sort of was supporting all of this information. But Mm. they were adamant about how key those really, really early years were, so defining times between one and three years of age, for language in particular, one and four or five, you know, for making sure that sort of, you know, the prognosis prognosis for the future, would it would give you a better prognosis for the future Mm. if you actually did the early intervention. Yeah, between language, maintaining home language, and I think also because a lot of the time what happened is that often as educators, Judith and George saw families that were from a diverse cultural background with a child with a disability and those challenges would arise even further because although the child was learning whatever they learned even with a disability in the home language then they needed to tackle intervention in English which and all the services would have been really hindered progress because you're stopping a language Mm. and you're starting a language and my early experiences were that exactly you Mm. know I did kindy in Australia year one in Greece year two and three in Australia repeated year three in Greece so anyway, yeah. it was a lot of chopping and changing. And every time we changed country, we stopped the language. Mm. And the only great thing was that my parents always decided that there was, there had to be, I mean, in the early years we didn't do extra schooling, so that was really hard. But it was maintained within the home environment. But we had an incredible educator, Kindy, in Australia. And the teacher recognised that my family wasn't educated. Key point number one, we didn't have books at home, mm. number two. So Mrs Boxer was her name. I don't know where this lady is, God bless her soul. She bought us a book, Hansel and Gretel, and she brought the book home. She came to visit my mum at home, Mm. and she told my mum how important it was that we read at home, and she actually organised extra classes for us during recess time. So my whole life has been recess, (laughs) never been recess. Um, so she provided additional remediation, reading and yeah. support, and she would come to our house every so often to check and touch base with mum, which was mm. amazing. Yeah. And Hansel and Gretel was my first book, and it was my beloved story. I don't know how many times I read it, but I read that book so many times. Going back to how important those early years are and how mm. important that yeah. early support is and how critical it brings, obviously, a lot of emotion in me because yeah. I look at the little children that come to my service and often they're the ones that really pull in my... And so it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy of, of you experienced that intervention, for want of a better word, and that showed you, even mm. at that impressionable age, that there was value in a broader education than the system might offer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And also the recognition of the importance of really early language and supporting children. I mean, I sort of look at uh, the instances where little children come into the centre and I had one little person in particular, I remember him walking in and he had no English at all. And you learn the basic words, you know, sad, happy, mummy comes soon, bottle, eat, drink, toilet. So basic communication. But how do you explain to a child that where mum has left, particularly if the parent themselves don't have the skill set and what they want to do is just escape the distress of their child so they leave the child and the child is really distressed but with that explanation Mm. often that that would Mm. happen in the early years 
And I remember for five days, I literally, I got a stiff bottom from sitting down on the concrete seven hours a day mm. next to this gate where this child was permanently positioned. And every time the gate opened, in the early stages, he'd look at me in panic because somebody was coming in the door and he was in panic. And then after the second day, he would jump on my lap and hold on as tight as he could. Mm. And as soon as the gate was closed and the threat had passed, he'd get off me again and like, you know, you're the evil. But after about a week of that, we developed a connection because Mm. other children were coming to me. They were bringing toys. We'd sit and play at the gate. Mm. And progressively that became, and you know, you're able to Mm. connect and that they feel safe. But it's it's just that language is such a... If they don't have the language to communicate to you how they're feeling, how do they express that? Mm. Yeah. If you and, don't and have the language it's to communicate. As it is with... with um, you know, if, we, if we transpose that into a work environment and you look at your staff, because you've had staff all the way through, the behaviours that you see in the children, you obviously see in the workforce, yeah. the adult workforce that yeah. you've got with you. And they, if they don't have a way of expressing themselves, then it comes out in their behaviours. And yeah. in, in whether they get the work done or they don't get the work done or they throw someone else under the bus and blame someone else for, for what doesn't get done because they can't explain it, they can't express it in that way. That's where we'll take a break in our discussion with Mariana Georgiadis. Join us next time as we explore a little bit further what it's like to manage multilingual, multidisciplinary teams in a fairly unsafe environment in terms of physical safety. For now, I'm Kim Valley and this is Inside Exec.